0: If you have a Bible with you, uh, please open to the book of Romans, chapter 13. Romans 13. We've been going through the book of Romans and our sermons on Sundays and have gotten this far. Um, interesting, the sermon sandwiched between two songs. Um, one talks about our pilgrim days. Our earthly mission will soon close and our pilgrim days will pass and then. The song we're singing at the end of the service is the stormy banks of Jordan, anticipating our future in heaven. Well, um, in the middle of that, we have a sermon on loving your neighbor. And that fits because of the way the Bible talks about love and ethics. It always wants to put ethical instruction in the midst of the story that our lives are a part of. It doesn't just give us bare uh, information about what's right and wrong where you just look up in the index a certain ethical subject and then you find the instruction on that in the Bible and then you know what to do. It always frames our behavior in light of the big story that we've been included in. God's big story of you know, love for his problem children. And so um, when he comes to a passage like this at the end of this long book of Romans, He wants us to understand the commands about how we treat each other in light of the big story we're included in. Um, We all have had our lives brought into the story of what God's doing in the world through Jesus Christ, that he's bringing us home to him, that he's rescuing us, that he's setting his broken world back right side up. And it's in that context that we can understand and think well and have some chance to live out what he says is appropriate for us in the way that we love each other. So that's what we're going to look at today, how uh, being a part of God's big love story for us enables us to love each other. Let me pray for us, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, please open our hearts and minds to you as we consider your word. Uh, Pray that you would challenge us and give us hope as we consider uh, the kind of life that we can live in relationship with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Beginning at verse 8 in Romans 13, he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time." and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I've got two new items to try to understand this week. One was uh, a used car. And so I've got the owner's manuals out, trying to figure out what the buttons do, how you run the air conditioner. Not real sure yet about how you hook up the Bluetooth. Just trying to figure out what's the maintenance schedule. How do you do this? What's the owner's manual Operating system for the car. Uh, that was one new thing. The other is uh, that Apple updated their Maps app. Right, and I don't know if it's going to work or not. But now it not only tells you, you know, you are here and gives you directions where you want to go, but they've got like 3D pictures of uh, the route along the way that you can scan through. They've got guides for, uh, I'm sure, people who've paid them to put. There are ads on there, but places you could eat or sites to see along the way on your trip, uh, they're supposed to measure traffic now and maybe reroute you to a better route. Uh, A much more complicated and thorough map about uh, getting you from point A to point B. Those are examples of two different ways of approaching ethics. One way is to look at the Bible, for a Christian, look at the Bible as an owner's manual and say, okay, What's all the information about gossip? I'll look in the index, and I'll go look up all the things. Then you can just organize those and digest them out and say, here's the ethic about gossip. Owner's manual approach. Right? But the other approach is to take the big story of what the whole Bible is about, which is how the ethical information of in the Bible is presented, and see this big map of your life that says you are here, and this is where you've come from, and this is where you're heading, and in light of that, this is how you're to behave. This is how you're supposed to fit yourself into the world in anticipation of the world to come. And it's a less precise approach to ethics than you'd want. Sometimes it doesn't give you a checkbox for every little issue that comes up, but more it gives you a way of looking at the world in which uh, God's ethics makes sense. Right. so... Um, You can summarize in a world like this all the ethics about how you treat other people by saying, love your neighbor as yourself. And that doesn't tell you everything you have to do to make your marriage work, right, or to get along with your roommates. But it sets a framework by which you can make good decisions ethically about how you're meant to live. How do you fit yourself into this world? Um, This app doesn't give you an ETA. you don't know when you'll arrive at the next world, uh, but we're told how to fit ourselves into life in the midst of it. So when you think about how Jesus talked about ethics, you kind of see this. Because a lot of times he would give indirect answers to people when they'd ask him ethical questions. Um, in the New Testament, I mean, the gospel passage we read today, he gave a very direct answer about, you know, the greatest commandment is to love God with your whole being and then love your neighbors yourself. But in other situations, when he's asked, what does it mean to love my neighbor, he starts telling stories. Right? Like the Good Samaritan story was given an answer to who is my neighbor if I'm supposed to love my neighbor, and he gives you uh, a story that gives you a lot of stuff to think about and steep in that provokes your imagination and has some sense of mystery to it and indirectness to it. And sometimes you want Jesus to give you a more direct answer than that. I have have two mentors in my life. One is like Jesus, and the other is like Paul. The one like Jesus, you'll ask him a question, and he'll start saying, "Well." In our church in Gadsden, what I usually found was, and goes off on a story, and I'm thinking, did he hear my question? Or did he just want to tell me a story about Gadsden? But that's how Jesus would answer questions. You know, my other friend, who's like Paul, and his name is Paul, uh, gives me what I think of kind of as the straight shot, right? He gives you the indirect, uh, no illustrations and stories answered to the question, very direct, just the fact, systematic. You know? um, that's how we think of Paul. And Paul doesn't use a lot of stories. I mean, honestly, he uses some Old Testament stories here and there. Uh, But Paul always argues out of a story, right? He's always saying this is the story of what God is doing in the world and what he's doing in your life and what you've been brought into. And because of that, you need to behave in these ways. It's uh, like he does here. At first, he talks like I expect Paul to talk. In the first few verses, he talks about... uh, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? This is the Old Testament summation of, of what we owe each other, what our duty is. That's the law. You love your neighbors yourself. And, you know, he even breaks it down like an outline. You know, point two in the law is love your neighbor as yourself. Subheading A is uh, do not murder. Subheading B is do not commit adultery. Subheading C, do not steal. You know, that's the way I like to think. I'm a Presbyterian, I like organization, systematization, all that kind of stuff. That's what I expect from Paul. But then when he gets down to, to verse eleven, he starts into this vague talk and says, Besides this you know the time you know the time. What does that mean? That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, day is at hand. And he's getting poetic on me, and I'm like I don't want this from Paul, right? I can. This isn't how you talk about ethics, but he starts into these flourishes about the time and the hour and the day because he's trying to fit us mentally and imaginatively into where we fit in the story, giving us the you are here in the map. He's saying, like he always does, that, that there are two Venn diagrams that overlap in your life. One is who you were by nature, um, as Paul says, in Adam, when you were born. And the other is the person that you were, you are in relationship to Jesus Christ. The old you and the new you, he talks sometimes. And the timeline of those things overlaps like a Venn diagram. You still uh, are who you were, but you've become a new creature. You just aren't fully who you're going to be yet. And so you feel schizophrenic all the time. Like you, there's, there's two different parts of you, and Paul talks pretty poignantly about that in this book. But he's saying, um, who you're going to be is who you really are. And that's going to happen sooner than you think. Probably. He's not saying he knows when Jesus is coming back. Um, I mean, and his argument isn't Jesus is coming back soon. So look busy. You know, you might be embarrassed if you're doing that when Jesus comes back. You know, that's not, that's not what he's saying at all. When he says it's time to wake up, what he's saying is remember who you are now and what's coming very soon. Whether Jesus comes back or whether you go to go to him, uh, it's going to happen very soon. And that's the reality of your life. That's who you really are. And so you need to live into that now. Orient yourself in the story. And don't just habitually live where you lived before. Uh, your old life is not you really anymore. And don't live like it is. So he wants you to be thinking about the big story all the time. That's a little troubling for us. We're, not, uh, we're usually suspicious of big story, uh, descriptions of the world and of life. Uh, we've gotten fairly cynical about thinking that there's, there's a real us somewhere down in the core of us because we live in a world where people have pastiche personalities. You can change your identity by changing your clothes. You can change your identity as often and as dramatically as you wish to, and we all think that's normal. Now, and Paul writes and says, no, there's a core reality of who you actually are when you peel away all the artifice. And that is that you are a Christian, the new creation that Jesus is making you to be. That's your destiny, and that's your identity now. And he says that's what you need to know. Your story is this, that you were created by God, uh, and... You've rebelled against God, and that explains why you're so awesome, and it explains why you're such a mess, and you think, that makes sense to me. I I feel awesome, and I feel like a mess, and it seems odd to try to believe both, but a created but fallen creature understands themselves in that story, right? That's the reason we are the way we are, and we've been rescued. We've had an older brother who's come to look for us when we had wandered off and to bring us back home, and... As we come back home, we have a Father who runs out to meet us and who prepares a feast for us because He's happy to have us back. And we have a future with Him. We're pilgrims now on the way home to our real home, on the way home to our Father. The new creation is how Paul talks about it. So when he says your salvation in verse 11 is nearer now than when we first believed, he doesn't mean that you're working your way up and almost ready to achieve a right relationship with God. He means the finished product of what God's been doing in the world is getting closer. The new heavens and new earth are coming. When you'll be fixed, uh, you won't be double-minded anymore. You'll have a body that works. You'll have a brain that works. Relationships that work. Emotions that work. A relationship with God that's unfettered. uh, An environment that isn't hostile to you. These things are coming sooner than you think. And so when you pray, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, uh, don't sleep on that because that's going to happen very soon is what he's saying. So, But you're not home yet. right? You're not home yet. You're going to be this person. You started to be, but it doesn't feel like you really are yet. Long way to go in the process. Um, it reminds me of uh, my emotions about my football team this week. Uh, the other team got COVID, and so the game that my team was prepared for and finally favored in uh, got postponed, maybe canceled, postponed though, and so they didn't get to play Saturday, and they don't know when the game's going to be rescheduled, but they're supposed to play, but they don't know when, and so what does the team do now? Let's take a week off and not practice. Let's take a week off, not lift any weights. let not run. No, they... They prepare like a game's coming up, right? They're, they don't know when it's coming, but they have to stay prepared uh, because they want to play well when the game comes. Uh, that's what they're doing in the meantime while they wait and don't know how long they're waiting. And it's an example of how we wait. Uh, we're preparing for our new life, even though sometimes it seems very far away. He says it's not. It's kind of a truism when he says, you know, it's closer now than when you first believed. Yeah, that's true, but it's also a helpful way to think, right? You know, I don't know how long it's going to be, but you can ask Christians who've been Christians for a long time, and they'll tell you the ticking clock does have a motivational effect on you as you think about your life and you think about uh, how you treat people and how you spend your time because you realize your time actually is getting pretty short. What this means is what Paul isn't saying here, which sometimes gets confused because of the last verse in the passage where it says put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires Uh, some people take this to mean that Paul is describing um, our ethical life apart from the big picture and he's just saying here's how you live as a good person you've got this flesh which is your body that's bad and you've got this soul or spirit uh, inside you that's immaterial and it's really good And so you need to make sure you don't indulge your body so that your soul can really shine through and you can uh, be a healthy and upright Christian person. And that's not his argument at all because when Paul uses the word flesh, what he means is the whole circle of who you used to be, body and soul, in rebellion against God. And the new person that you put on when you put on Christ, this identity, this new you, is body and soul, everything that you will be. Uh, when he's finished his work in you. Uh, The Bible doesn't do this uh, thing that the Greeks did that says the the body is the real problem and you just have to stop your bodily uh, desires so that you can be a good person. The body's part of the problem, for sure, but it's not the whole problem. So when he starts talking about sins, you need to avoid, he talks about uh, drunkenness and sexual immorality, but also quarreling and jealousy. that's body and soul kind of stuff there that he talks about so um, the story's supposed to orient you though morally, ethically like thinking about yourself as who you're going to become, is supposed to get inside your imagination in a way that it reshapes you Um, and an analogy of this would be like the stories people tell at an AA meeting in recovery, you know that's what you do at an AA meeting, is you just tell your story. And it's amazing how little is unique in the stories, right? All the stories are the same. No one says, whoa. I had never heard anything like that before. The point is, you think, whoa, that sounds exactly like my life, right? I've not only heard that a lot, I've lived that. And that story is meant to give you some hope to make you realize that. A person can be lovable even if they're as damaged as you are. And it's supposed to give you a chance to have somebody look in your eyes as a fellow addict instead of having people look at you with the eyes of disappointment like your exasperated family probably does. You hear this story and somehow to have someone look at you with understanding and empathy gives you hope for a way forward. And so our stories as christians and the story that we've been included in gives us hope and that way we find ourselves in the story and realize you know what i i know who i am i'm not under any illusions about how good a person i am um but what jesus says he's doing to fix the world and fix people like me might really be real there might really be a fixed version of me one day there might be a version of me that is actually easy to live with and pleasant to live with and um, that could actually happen, and it gives us hope. The gospel story orients us that way. Right? We get seen through empathetic eyes, and we get hope that there might be something different about us. It happened to Augustine, uh, St. Augustine. Most of you probably know a 4th century bishop in Africa. Um, his story is very famous. His confessions are one of the pieces of the canon of Western literature. Um, such a good Christian that like his life shapes the way everybody reads this text. Because he was converted by reading this text that we're reading today. Uh, that's never going to happen for you. You may have a favorite verse and you may like, needle point it and put it on your wall. But no one's ever going to say, this is the famous Augustine passage. Yeah, He was special. But he, he had a Christian mother, Monica, who loved him and tried to raise him as a Christian, but he didn't really want any part of that. He... Uh, wanted to live life of a profligate and an intellectual. And so he's very smart. He uh, became a professor in Milan and lived a very profligate life, especially sexually. But he met in Milan a man named Ambrose, who's another of the doctors of the church. Um, one grenade could have changed a lot of church history when Ambrose and Augustine were together. But Ambrose was trying to persuade Augustine uh, to embrace his faith. And Augustine kind of became persuaded that it was true. But he looked at it and thought, but I can't imagine living that way. Like, I can't sign over uh, the story rights to my life to Jesus because I know he's going to want to change some things that I can't imagine changing, especially sexually. And so he was just reluctant. He didn't want to convert because of this. He talked about passages in the Bible like this one that that say, wake up. And he said, all I could ever manage was a sleepy answer. Maybe tomorrow. Because his imagination was soaked in a a different story, right? A false story about what was going to make him happy. What he had to have in order to be a happy, fulfilled person. He knew he he couldn't give those things up. And if he gives his life to Jesus, he knows a lot of those things are going to change. And his story was that he was sitting in the garden uh, wrestling with himself mentally about what was wrong with him and why he couldn't match up what he knew he ought to be with what he was. And he heard over a garden wall children uh, playing some game apparently that he had never heard of, but they were singing, Tole lege, tole lege, take up and read. And he took it in what... Seems like a superstitious way to be God's own voice, telling him to take up and read. So he goes into his house, he grabs his Bible and does what you're not supposed to do, flings it open, finds the first thing he sees. And it's Romans 13, uh, 13 and 14 says, uh, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. And the light bulb came on (laughs) of all verses that verse uh, light bulb came on and he was converted Became a Christian then. And he puts that story in his confessions that uh, people have read down through the ages very hopefully um, because it became very important to him and his influence through the ages has been important in teaching us to see ourselves in in God's story. Like fitting into that big picture and having our loves and imaginations shaped by that picture. Some of you have read Jamie Smith's Uh, most recent book about that, On the Road with St. Augustine. And um, he really plays that out. That might be a good Thanksgiving book to read if you're looking for one, because it's very good. Uh, Augustine's uh, theory about who we are and how we change is that we're we're people who love the wrong things and disproportionately. And that what Jesus is doing in our lives is causing us to love things that are really beautiful and love them proportionately. Reordering our loves he says, is what he's after. And that's basically how Paul describes our ethics, the way we treat each other, is that we reorder our loves. So when Jesus goes to teach about loving your neighbor, which is the point here, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. He doesn't just—he give a list of rules. He gives a story. But there's a lot to think about in the story. Uh, the surface thing you see is, I should help people who are in trouble, people who are less fortunate than I am. Uh, that's the kind and good thing to do that 's what a good person does, and everybody goes yeah that's that's what the Good Samaritan story tells you also tells you don't don't be narrow about who your neighbor is. So when I'm told to love my neighbor and that sounds pretty good, but then I think, well I can't exclude anybody from being my neighbor because they have different politics than I do or a different race or they're born in a different country than I was. I have the obligation to love them, like Leviticus said in our Old Testament reading. I can't narrow down who my neighbor is because of this. And then, you see, in the negative examples in that story, the the priest and Levite who walk by on the other side of the road and don't help the man in the ditch. You see the inertia in our lives, the resistance we have to actually show in love when it costs us something. And you start to steep on that for a while. And then, eventually, you think about it long enough and you think, I'm... I'm the man in the ditch, right? Uh, I'm not the goody two shoes that comes along and helps. I'm the one who needs this kind of help. and Jesus is the good Samaritan, and he's the one who's come along to help me and then steep on that for a little while longer and you remember what Jesus said about how if you whatever you've done to the least of these my brothers you've done to me and you realize Jesus is in the ditch and when I ignore him, the one in the ditch, I'm ignoring him anyway, Jesus tells this story and it goes after your imagination and it moves your heart. It doesn't just give you information and an ethical list to follow. Um, He's trying to get you to love differently and love more proportionately where you need to. Stories are a little vague. I'd rather have a list, a checklist. Tell me what to do in every situation. That would be comforting. That would be that religion they always accuse us of having that I want so much where you have the easy answers and you don't have to think. (laughs) I still would like that one. I just want to be, I'd be told what to do. And, and like Paul does tell you what to do. Jesus says too, they quote the commandments. It's not like they are fudging on the law by appealing to your imagination. You get all nearly all of the second table of the Ten Commandments here except for honoring your father and mother and, and uh, bearing false witness. He mentions the others by name. In verse 13, he gets real specific about orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality and quarreling and jealousy and all that. He's, they're not diluting the law by saying you need to to put it in the context of love and to let it shape your imagination, not just your behavior. Um, It's just never going to be rich and mature enough if you don't put it in the context of of the big story. Um, That's why the Pharisees, who were very serious about ethics, way more serious than you are about ethics, tried really hard to do what God wanted and failed. Well, why did they fail? I mean, they had they had the Leviticus 19 passage that said, love your neighbor as yourself. That's what God's law requires of you. Why did they fail ethically? Well, one, they separated their ethics from the big story of God's grace. So they didn't ever see themselves as the ones in need of mercy. They just always saw themselves as the good people who should condescend to give others mercy. And so they're... Their mercy was sterile and off-putting to people. It didn't flow from a heart that was astonished by God's grace. But the other thing they did is they fell into the habit of trying to distill out of the biblical information a list of rules to follow. We're going to distill an ethics out of the story and just follow the code of ethics that we distill. And that distorted and mutated what it meant to keep God's law. So when Jesus came, He said, the Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses, so listen to what they tell you and do it, but don't be like them. Listen to what they tell you and do it, but don't be like them. Because they separated their ethics from God and from the story of their lives with God. If you have the rules... And try to keep the rules. But you don't have love. And I mean affectionately. don't have love for the people that you're keeping the law toward. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 famously, You're a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Without love, keeping the rules is nothing, he says. And I mean, that's affectional love. Not This isn't where you think, well... Love isn't a feeling. Love is doing the right thing no matter what you feel. But that's not true biblically. Love is a feeling and doing the right thing towards other people. Um, Think of a husband who comes to marriage counseling whose wife's been unfaithful and he's furious and and he says, I've never been unfaithful. I have kept all the rules. And the wife's saying, I obviously broke the rules, but you would never love me, right? Who's at fault in this breaking marriage? Both of them, Because right? it's not love. Without the context of love and the story of love, our rule-keeping doesn't matter. It doesn't do anything. How can you command, though, how do you command somebody to be affectionate and empathetic, to care about somebody, like, emotionally, Isn't that just something that happens to you? I fall in love? (laughs) How can you command somebody just to do that? Feel this. You can't. Not to any effect anyway. You can tell people to, but they can't just do it. The way you drive people toward love and stir people up in love is with story. You put them in a story that says you see yourself in the ditch you see yourself as the one who wasn't just undeserving and helpless but uh, who deserved to be in the ditch if you start to feel that it'll change the way you look at other people when they're in the ditch it might create some empathy in your life and when you see your neighbor in the ditch and you think about Jesus story about the Samaritan and you think well that guy in the ditch is a democrat I don't have to love him, do I? Right. Or when you've been to the AA meeting and people have looked at you not like your disappointed, exasperated family does, but people who have hope and empathy for you. That sort of changes you too. Right. Enables you to look at other people with some compassion and even some hope and some love. To realize that as Paul says here, When you see people that are hard to love, you're in their debt. You're in their debt because of the big story of what Jesus is doing for you. The change that He's making in your life that you haven't deserved either. So, he gives a couple of examples. say these quickly. He talks about sex, and he describes failures of love. When people use sex to gratify themselves and to use and to humanize other people, Uh, they are not fulfilling their obligation to love, right? We think love should never be constrained or defined. There shouldn't be guardrails and parameters put up around it. He says, if you're going to love people, you have to honor them sexually, right? The seventh commandment, which he mentioned earlier, you protect other people's uh, marriages. You protect other people's purity. Yeah, um, it's not squeamish about sex. Did you ever see Quick Straw McGraw? Yeah. Oh, people. Um, <laughs> Quick Straw McGraw had a sidekick uh, who was a vigilante of sorts named El Cabong. You remember El Cabong? He would take his guitar. I think it was like a donkey, an animated donkey, and he would defeat the bad guys by taking his guitar. And crushing him with his guitar. And when he did it, so he would say poetically, El Cabon. Right? It was pretty meaningful. But that's not really what you do with a guitar. I mean, it'll work once, maybe twice, depending on how hard you swing. But that's not what a guitar is. It's not a weapon, it's an axe, but it's not a weapon, right? <laughs> And that's, sex is like that, right? It's the loving way. <laughs> it's not El Caban. and The, the pret- protections put around sex in the Bible are protections of love. So that you learn to use sex to love your spouse instead of using other people for your own gratification. Uh, quarreling, he mentions too. A friend of mine asked me the other day, you think there's any hope that we'll have any change uh, in the political, uh, cultural divides in our country? And I said, No. And I should have said, because I never think on my feet well enough, I should have said not without Jesus. But I don't have any hope for that apart from Jesus. But you've got Thanksgiving conversations coming up the next week or so. And if you don't see yourself in the big story where you're defined not by your nation and not by your party, not by your tribe, then you're going to overreact to the comments that your family members make about politics. If your identity is rooted in the big story of who Jesus is, then you can love somebody that disagrees with you. You can listen to them. You can respect them. You have a chance to do that. But if your identity is wrapped up in your tribe and your party, uh, then Thanksgiving is not going to be good, right? It's not going to be good. Uh, Samaritan. They're in the ditch. You were in the ditch too. Treat them that way. The story is what shapes us. Okay, I've got a wedding uh, next week my daughter's getting married this is good we like the boy um, he's not going to listen to this so I don't I can say that um, I'm doing the wedding I always said I wouldn't do the wedding because I didn't want to cry because I'm an ugly crier and can't cry and talk at the same time but it's a small COVID cheap wedding and <laughs> I don't have to pay another minister this way so I'm gonna do it and so, you know, what would you say to your son-in-law in the wedding sermon? is, And I'm, I'm going to try not to say too much to him, but you want to tell them to love each other. right? It's what everybody intends to do and plans to do when they get married, is love each other. But Christian marriage is different. I'm not just going to talk to him about the Bible rules and the Bible roles about marriage. I'm going to talk to him about the story. It says both of these people are Christians who have been changed by jesus and who are going to be radically changed by jesus there's eventually going to be a perfected version of each of them and um, jesus has promised to do that to them he's made vows to them that he's going to finish the work that he began in them and i'm going to tell them that they have to enter into that story on each other's behalf to love each other that you look at your spouse and say i'm invested in committed to the person that you're going to be um, I'm not just telling you that, that I think you're lovable right now. I'm telling you that in the violent process of you becoming like Jesus, I'm going to be your advocate and I'm going to be with you in that process. I'm going to cheer for you in that process and encourage you. Uh, I'm going to rebuke you when I have to do that, real nice like. But I'm going to rebuke you when I have to do that. And I'm going to keep believing that you're going to be that person even when you can't believe it and nobody else around you can believe it and nobody else can see it. I promise to keep seeing it. And that's my commitment to you. That's why my vows are about the future. And it's why my, I will love you and keep you and hold you. And it's why my vows are not a negotiation, but a blank contract. It says, I'm going to love you come what may. Because of the story. Not because I understand the rules and promise to keep the rules. But I understand the story of what God's doing in your life. And I'm going to love you through that process come what may. That's what they have to do for each other, married. That's what we have to do for each other and for our neighbors as well. I want to pray.